Of course, uh, 4th of July, uh, the reason why we celebrate 4th of July is because of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And of all of the things that are mentioned in there, uh, the the phrase you're probably most familiar with is what we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are, what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's right. So from the very beginning of the founding of our nation, the founding fathers desired for its citizens to experience these things. Life, liberty, joy. But um, there's a very different uh, thing. There's a big difference between those things being available to us versus those things actually being experienced by us. Am I right? Uh, the Harris poll uh, t- does, does a number of different polls, but one of the things that it, 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 uh, it you know, searches out among the Americans, a number of different things, but one of the things that it asks every year is, are you happy? Are you happy? Very simple question. And in that response... Uh, this past a few months ago, they found that only 33% of Americans would say that they are happy. And uh, it's kind of an interesting thing that here we are, we have so many freedoms, we have so many opportunities, we have so many rights and privileges as citizens of the United States, and yet most Americans are not happy. And I think we could also say that maybe if we're honest, a lot of us in the church are also not happy. And so instead of feeling life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, we might instead feel kind of death or stuck or maybe even enslaved. And instead of joyful and happy, we a lot of times can feel Miserable, but is that the way that God designed for us to be? I think we would say no. In fact, the founding fathers said that the Creator, so in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God said, I want you to experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in fact, that's what the book of Proverbs is all about it's an offer to us of the good life. But obviously, what we pursue as the good life will determine whether or not we're actually alive, free, and full of happiness. So turn with me to chapter 3 of Proverbs. Uh, Pastor Josh introduced the book of Proverbs last week, and uh, and he mentioned the fact that the first nine chapters is really a a father-son sort of dialogue, and then moving into chapter 10 and following, there's these short, pithy, memorable sort of statements that the Proverbs we typically think of. And so we're going to look at one of these conversations, and all of chapter 3 is really positive. There's lots of good things in here, but for time's sake, and to make sure that I don't go too long, we're just going to keep it to the first six verses. But you're going to find that a couple of these verses in particular are most likely very familiar uh, to you. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand? We're going to read these six verses together. Proverbs chapter 3. Listen to... God's word. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. God, we want life in you. We want liberty in you. We want happiness and joy and fulfillment in you. And yet, if we're honest, there's so many times where we don't experience that. Would you help us today to know, to experience, to enjoy all that you have designed for us to enjoy in the good life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. So today's uh, sermon title is The Good Life. And we've got uh, three broad observations that are found in this text, but really in all of Proverbs and really even all of Scripture. So we're going to start there. We're going to start kind of broad with these broad observations. And then we're going to go more specific into three specific instructions that are, are specifically in these six verses. And my hope is that as we're hearing these things, that God is just moving in our hearts to be able to really enjoy and desire after the good life. So observation number one has to do with our identity. Our identity greatly impacts the way we listen and relate to God. My son, that's how it starts. My son. Maybe you might hear it and you hear, my son. I don't know how you might hear it, but the way that we hear those words, my son, greatly impacts the way that we're going to experience this text. My son is mentioned 23 times in the book of Proverbs. And remember, this is Solomon speaking to a child. But more than that, this is God speaking to his people. The idea that God wants us to grab hold of is he he wants us to hear, my son, my daughter, I love you. Listen to me. Follow after me and you will experience the good life. For those of us who are in Christ, we get to hear, just like Jesus got to hear from his father, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Do you hear God speak to you in that way? God wants us to understand that before we do anything in this text, we first must receive from him adoption as his sons and daughters. If you want the good life, take a look at your heavenly father and see him inviting you to spend time with him. A good father who loves his children. Let me ask you this question. Would that change the way that you read and interact with scripture? I think so. But if we're honest, you know, sometimes the, our, our relationships with our earthly fathers and with other people, they impact our understanding of God as our heavenly father. And I don't want to minimize those things that sometimes we might have experienced, whether, whether it was a harsh dad or it was an uninterested dad or, or maybe it was a dad who was far away and wasn't even there. God wants us to hear. He is not, he's not like Darth Vader when Luke Skywalker is like, oh, this is my dad. I can't believe it. He's so awful. No. God wants to, wants to look at us and to say, 
I want to offer you a different sort of relationship altogether than maybe you've ever experienced before. It's one based on love, not legalism. One that's based on grace, not works. God wants to speak a better word over you and me. So when we read these Proverbs, God is not wanting to say, do this because I say so. He's wanting to say, do this because it will work for you, and because I love you. J.I. Packer in Knowing God, he, um, he says this. He says, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. So being redeemed, being forgiven is a really good thing. But Galatians chapter 4 says that adoption is far greater. And if we are not relating to God as our father, then we're not really going to be able to experience Proverbs the way that God would design. So I would desire more than anything else, more than anything else that you take from this sermon today, that you would be able to hear that God loves you. That he speaks to you and says, my child, my son, my daughter, with love and with affection. He's a good father who wants to commune with you, and he loves you no matter what. That is the core identity for us as Christians, is that we are children of God. Here's another thing. Dads, you have tremendous power and influence over your kids, whether they understand who God is as father in the right way or not. So I would encourage you, Look at your children in the eyes and say, my son, my daughter, I'm proud of you. I love you. I want what's best for you. I'll do wonders for your kids' faith in God. So our identity greatly impacts the way that we receive and we interact with God's word. That's broad observation number one. Number two has to do with rewards. Rewards are intended to motivate us towards greater obedience and thanksgiving to God. Look at the way that the father interacts with his son. He gives a little bit of advice or counsel, and then he comes and follows that up with an incentive. So verse 2, he says, hey, length of days, years of life, peace will be added to you if you follow my instructions. Verse 4, you'll find favor and good success. Verse 6, your paths will be made straight. Verse 8, you'll experience healing and refreshment to your bones. Verse 10, barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. And you move on to verse 16, long life, riches, and honor. And if you were to just go on throughout this whole entire chapter, the Father is saying, hey, if you follow after me, generally speaking, you are going to experience the good life. You're going to be rewarded. You're going to receive blessing. Here's a really important thing. This is not what we would call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity is like, hey, you name it, you claim it, you get it. Ray Ortland um, says, prosperity gospel is cold-hearted materialism disguised in religious dress. It does not love God, 
but wants to use him for selfish purposes. So God isn't offering these rewards and then just saying, hey, here's some gifts, and then we go and we take them and we don't really interact with God. Uh, I know it's, a lot of times we might say we bribe our kids. <laughs> um, the bribe is really, what is, what is that? That's, that's, just, that's just, I'm giving you something so that you obey me. A reward is, I'm giving you something because I want to bless you and because I want our relationship to be closer to one another. Uh, just to kind of give an illustration of this, we have a dog named Max. We got him about a year and a half ago. A couple pictures here for you. There's Max. Very cute. Look at Max, looking all chill, relaxed, enjoying the good life. (laughs) Those pictures are not accurate. (laughs) We got this dog, and his best day was his first day with us. Ever since then, like, he has this awful sort of relationship with us. Kids, am I right? Yes, they're shaking their heads. Yes, that's true. So we, we got Max. We're all excited. Man, bringing him to our home. We're going to love this kid or love this dog. You know, we're going to treat him with kindness and all that sort of good stuff. We, we might even treat him as a kid. You know, we might even replace one of our kids with Max. No, of course not, and especially not now. The only time that Max likes me is when I have a treat. So if I'm eating something, he immediately comes and sits next to my lap. And he's like, you know, and I, especially if I'm eating an apple. He loves apple cores. And so I'll eat this apple and I'll give him the core. And he, he, he takes it and then he runs off, never to interact with me again. This morning, I'm eating an apple. Uh, he's in his cage. I hear growling. He wants the apple core. And he growls until I finally hand the apple core to him. Leave him in his cage, of course. Uh, and then, you know, he's happy. He eats the apple core. And as soon as he finishes the apple core, he starts growling again. That's the way that he relates to me. Now, he does have a special relationship with my wife. He likes my wife, but he doesn't like any of the rest of us. So uh, anyway, I'm kind of jealous of Max. And anyway, all I just say, Max, he does not understand the purpose of a reward. The purpose of a reward is to draw me into fellowship with Max. Max can't stand relating to me. He only wants the gift. That's not the way that God wants to relate to us. God wants to offer us real gifts, wonderful gifts, awesome gifts, but they are designed to strengthen our relationship with him rather than to separate us from him. Here's the other part about God. God not only gives wonderful, great gifts that are talked about here in the book of Proverbs, but as he sees fit, he also gives pain. Verses 11 and 12 make it really clear that God not only gives joys, he also gives sorrows. He disciplines those whom he loves. And so pleasure and pain, they all kind of come Uh, jumbled up together because the ultimate goal of God is that we would experience the good life in him. And so sometimes he has to discipline us because he wants us to get more of him rather than just his good gifts. The deepest flaw in the prosperity gospel is that it has no room for pain and ultimately no room for Jesus in the midst of our pain. God wants us to say, I've got nothing left. 
but you, Jesus, and you're all that I need. (laughs) I'm satisfied with you and you alone. And that is the true gospel. That's prosperity. That is life. That is liberty. That's freedom. We get to experience God in that way. And so when we receive good gifts from our Heavenly Father, receive them with joy, with thankfulness, with gratitude. But just make sure that your focus is not on the gift which will fail you, but on the giver who will never fail you. It's not ultimately about the good stuff. It's about a good God who does give good stuff to his kids because he loves them. So that's observation number two. Observation number three, our target. God is most concerned with our hearts, not with our outward behavior. You know, each of these Proverbs in chapter 3, um, these, three these, six, these six verses, they all are targeted at the heart. What does it say? Keep your heart. Uh, verse, verse 1, a little bit later, verse 3 says, hey, write these things on the tablet of your heart. Verse 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In fact, the, the book of Proverbs mentions the heart, the word heart, 77 times. That's a really important thing that God wants us to understand that more than anything else that he's concerned about, he's most concerned about our hearts. Our hearts is the core of who we are. It's all of our emotions, all of our thoughts, all of our decisions. Everything that we have is our heart. Proverbs 4.23, it says that out of our heart flow, what? Springs of life. It means that all the time our heart is gushing some sort of life. Our dreams, our hopes, our our fears, our aspirations, all of that stuff is oozing out of our heart. It's like a water hose that's on full blast all the time. And no matter where you aim the water hose, it's, it's, it's always shooting out lots of stuff. And that's the way our heart is. And that's why God is so concerned about it. Because whatever we pursue, that's what we're aiming at as our path of life. And so God is really concerned about what is in our hearts and whether it's going after the good life that he designed. So what's coming out of your heart right now? What's capturing your imagination? What, what sort of feelings are, are wrapped up in your heart? What decisions and desires are in your heart? God's instruction is always aimed first and foremost at our heart. And if you want a good and happy life, focus on your heart. Pay close attention to it. Jesus, he he says when he arrives um, on earth, he says, hey, you know, a lot of times the people's heart, they they, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I, I want people who love the Lord with all their heart. So we are to focus on the inner more than the outer. I think that's really good instruction for us as parents too, right? A lot of times our, our, our concern is most importantly about our kids' behavior, and that's important. But more than that is what is motivating their behavior, what's oozing out of their heart. That's what we should be most concerned about, and that's what God is most concerned about with us. All right. Now that we've covered kind of these three broad observations, let's, let's jump in specifically into three instructions that God has for us here. Instruction number one, keep. If you want the good life, keep God's commands. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Keep is more than obey. 
keep is this idea of protection, of guarding. I mentioned Proverbs 4 a little bit earlier, where it says that our hearts are, are spewing forth all sorts of life. Right before that, it says to keep your heart with all vigilance, or above all else, to guard your heart. The idea here is that there are thieves that are always trying to steal away length of days and years of life and peace, shalom, wholeness. We want to take those things away from us. And the writer is saying, hey, above all these things, keep my commands. Hold tight to them. Bind them. You know, protect God's word. Protect your time with me in my word. They're of utmost value. My commandments and, my, and your heart are of utmost value. And so protect them. Guys, there's lots of things that will try to steal away our, our lives. Lots of lies. Lots of idols that we a lot of times can worship. And so sometimes we might, we might put our hopes and our dreams in our jobs. And we, we go after our jobs. We work as hard as we can. And then what happens? We can never relax. And we become really compulsive about our work. And we're literally working for our salvation and for our peace. Maybe we put our hopes and our dreams in our family, and we want our, if, we, if, our, if our parents or our kids would, would just act right, act a certain way, that would, then I would finally have security, and I'd finally be at peace. But as we know, ultimately our, our kids, they're going to break our hearts sometimes. Our parents are sometimes not going to come through for us the way that we would want. However you define your shalom, you will be disappointed if you don't look to Christ and his commands. When you obey your idols, they won't satisfy. And when you disobey them, they often will punish you. So I have a question. Do you ever let God's word, his commands, overrule your own thinking? When was the last time you said, Lord, I ask you to correct my thinking based on your word and your commands. If I'm honest, a lot of times I just look for the things in God's word that kind of are in line with what my, my, my thinking already is. And God says, no, I want to correct your thinking. I, wanna, I want you to, to, to say, above all else, guard my commands, keep my commands, put those at the highest and utmost priority for you. Uh, there's a writer uh, named John Flavel. He was a Puritan, and he talks about how our hearts um, are often like a musical instrument. So if you guys like to play instruments, you know, you always have to kind of retune your heart, some, I mean, retune your instrument. You know, sometimes it'll get out of tune. Uh, maybe it hangs on the wall for a few days, or maybe it gets bumped, and you're always having to kind of retune it and recalibrate it. He said our hearts are like that. They can be right with God, and then very quickly something disrupts them, or we get distracted, or circumstances of life kind of come in, and they throw our hearts all over the place, and they become very divided again. And, and then God invites us to spend time in his word to unite our hearts back to him. It's the only fixed reality that's always sure, always steadfast, always true. The only thing that we can truly tune our hearts to that is the best thing to tune it to. But we know that if we often, if, if we end up moving astray, uh, it's, it leads us down a, a life that, that doesn't satisfy. And so God is always telling us, hey, come retune your heart to me. Prioritize my commands. Keep them. 
protect them, guard them with all vigilance. So that's instruction number one, keep. Instruction number two, bind. If you want the good life, bind steadfast love and faithfulness to your heart. Verse 3 and 4, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And when God tells us to to bind these things um, around our neck and write them on the tablet of our heart, He's not just saying, oh, these are these characteristics and just kind of just throw them on you or something. You know, or like Paul Tripp, I think he talks about how we can, we're like a, like a tree and we just staple good fruit on us and that that's supposed to help. But as we know, ultimately, the, the heart is, is where everything flows. And so the writer here is again saying, hey, you've got to bind these things close to you, not just kind of staple them on, but bind these characteristics close to you. And ultimately, we know about this, these words, steadfast love and faithfulness, this is not just attributes that are kind of ambiguously out there. This is the attributes of God himself. Think of Exodus 34 when Moses is talking with God and he says, hey, I want, I want to see your glory. And, and God says, all right, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then as he does that, he passes by Moses, and he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So in other words, right here, what we're instructed to do more than anything else is not just bind characteristics, but ultimately bind God to our hearts. And the cool thing is, is that it says that God is going to bind us to his heart. He actually writes his word on our hearts and writes himself on our hearts. So there's this interchange that goes on as God is, God is moving in our hearts. We are called to, to bind him close to us as well. And so ultimately when we say bind, what we mean is bind Jesus and let God, who, who never changes and who is always full of steadfast love and faithfulness, begin to change you from the inside out. So that when you become, to be, become more steadfast, full of love and faithfulness, then verse 4 happens. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. A person of steadfast love and faithfulness is someone who can be trusted and admired. A person who, who, who go, the people look at and they say, wow, I want to follow after that person. And I think if we're, if we're honest, though, there's a lot of times where people look at Christians, they're like, I, I don't want to deal with that person. They're not full of steadfast love and faithfulness. They've looked to people, look to God's people to portray those things, and then they've been burned, and so they turn away. They become jaded, or they become angry, and they ultimately turn away from the Lord. But we don't want to live like that, do we? Now, we want to live like Jesus so that people would trust us, admire us, and ultimately look to God and enjoy the good life that he offers to them. The Apostle Paul says, put on Christ, and that's the idea here in this passage to put these attributes on, and ultimately to put on Christ. Less of me, more of Jesus. And as we do, as we bind Jesus to our hearts, then these things begin to shine, his attributes begin to shine out of us. So if you guys have uh, been watching the World Cup, just a quick illustration here. Um, I'm not a big World Cup fan until this year when we were in North Africa. 
uh, we got to watch some World Cup games, and they're just huge, of course, over there. And what I, had, what I was interested in was not just the soccer playing, but it was the fans. These fans are crazy. Have you guys seen that? i show a few pictures up here. So there's the English fans, the three lions. They're pretty dressed up, pretty excited, dressed up like lions. There's some Japanese fans, pretty crazy. Senegal, those guys are awesome. And then last but not least, that's my favorite. This guy's a fan of Colombia. Here's the idea. These guys love their country so much that they're willing to just go crazy for their country and willing to show their love for their country no matter where they go. They're on TV. They've got pictures of them. They don't care. They, they love their country. They're so excited about it. And so they want to show it. And so the illustration here is that God is telling us, show Jesus to the world. Go crazy for Jesus. Put on steadfast love and faithfulness in such a way that when people see you, they see Jesus and they want Jesus. And they want to experience the good life that he offers to them. That's instruction number two. Bind. Last but not least, trust. Trust. If you want the good life, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse five and six, very Familiar, a familiar passage to you. In fact, my grandmother, every time she would sign a card, she would always put Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 next to it. My parents would teach us from a very early age. Very memorable passage of Scripture. So important and yet so hard to practice. Here's the interesting thing about verse 5. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The Lord is in caps. It means Yahweh. It means Jehovah. It's it's a self-existent, unchanging one who is full of covenant faithfulness to his people. So this is not some sort of abstract deity. This is a personal God that we're called to trust in. I mentioned earlier, I was in North Africa a few weeks ago, and the people there, of course, they're all Muslim. And they have these huge mosques, and yet they're empty They're empty. There's nothing there. When you walk in, you just don't feel anything. There's no presence. There's no personal interaction. When the people pray, they just pray rote prayers in Arabic. They don't even understand in hopes that maybe Allah will listen to them and respond to them. That's not the type of God that we have. We just talked about the fact that God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so when he's wanting us to trust in him, he's saying, hey, I am a real personal, loving, faithful sort of God. I will never let you down. All those other, all those other things, they're all going to let you down, but I will never let you down. But here's the interesting thing. He requires wholehearted trust. Trust means to throw oneself on one's face, to lie spread eagle in complete reliance. That's what it means. I was listening to a sermon that gave a great illustration about trust, and it caused me to think about an experience I had at Camp Pearl. I was nine years old, first time away from home for the week. And uh, if you guys have ever been to camp, you know, there's all sorts of different types of camp. But this one was really based a lot on, like, competitions and stuff. So we'd clean up our beds. We'd have to clean up our dorm room, and we'd get judged on it. We, there was a competition for relay races. There was a competition for uh, free throw shooting. And the competition, though, that, that sticks out to me in particular was diving. I was not that great of a diver. 
I was like, I'm going to go ahead and try this. And so uh, they had this, of course, big pool with a big diving board back when they did have real diving boards that really <laughs> bounced up and down. And so um, I, uh, I, there was a line of about 25 of us. And so one after another, we'd all try to achieve the perfect dive, you know, the up, arch, down, no splash. That was the goal, the big swan dive maybe. And so I remember uh, I was really nervous, wanted to get it just right. And so I, uh, I take the dive, and I actually did pretty well. I was, I was pretty excited. I am getting second place, which was pretty awesome. But that's not what I remember. I remember this other guy later on in the line. And when it's his turn to come up and dive, he kind of bounces on it a little bit, gets, really, gets a lot of jumping, and then all of a sudden he takes off. But instead of doing the swan eagle and then going like this, doing the perfect arch, he goes like this. And he does the biggest belly flop I've ever seen in my entire life. And he hit the, he hit the water so hard. It was this huge, you know, this massive splash. And all of us were like, oh, I can't believe it just happened. Here's the crazy thing. He, could, he, he comes out of the water, and he's got the biggest smile on his face. <laughs> he loved it. And so I don't even really care about my second grade experience, or my, my second place experience. I was like, that's not really, what I really want is that. Where I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm just going all out, belly flop. What this passage is telling us to do is do a belly flop on Christ. Throw yourself on him completely. All your shame, all your sin, all your failure, all your shortcomings, all your disappointments, everything. Just throw it out all on him. Spread eagle saying, Jesus, you got to catch me. And he will. He's the only one whose steadfast love and faithfulness will catch you. So whatever you're facing right now, trust in the Lord with all your heart. A.W. Tozer, he says this. He says, pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam first stood up on earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. So God says, I've got you if you would just trust in me, if you'd rely upon me. Lie out, spread eagle upon me. You might be having that sense of like, I just don't know if I can do that. Jesus says, hey, let me me take care of your mess. I'm here, I love you. I'm not ashamed to be your savior. And here's the amazing thing. God requires our whole hearts in this trust of him. But not only that, God has first offered himself wholeheartedly to you and to me. All of himself has been given to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He lied, spread eagle, on the cross for you and for me. Gave all of himself for you and for me. And he says, hey, trust in me. I won't let you down. When was the last time that you took a risk 
a true risk where you maybe, maybe were, were risking financial or professional or, or, or future social sort of risks that were out there, that you were willing to throw that out there because you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was saying, hey, follow after me, trust in me, I won't let you down. Maybe it's some strong words for a loved one who's walking away from the faith, and you know it's going to be risky, but you know you've got to reach out to them and love them with the love of Jesus. Take a risk. Spread eagle on Jesus, knowing that he'll catch you in that conversation. Maybe it's starting a new ministry or a new business venture, and you just really sense, like, God wants me to do this, but I'm afraid. Do a belly flop on Christ. Maybe it's talking to a friend or a neighbor about Jesus and you've been living next to them for a long time and you're just, you're just unsure about willing to go there. Trust in Jesus. Maybe it's sacrificially giving of your income, being, being really generous with your money because you know that God is calling you to give to whatever it might be. Trust in him, he'll catch you. Maybe it's adopting or fostering a child and bringing them into your home. Take the risk. He'll catch you. Maybe it's forgiving someone who's hurt you deeply. Give it over to Jesus. Trust in him. He'll catch you. Or maybe you need to be open and honest about your sin. Confess your sin, not only to the Lord, but to those around you and saying, Jesus died for me. I'm willing to confess my sin because I know that he'll catch me. Here's the amazing thing. If you will trust in the Lord with all your heart, you won't lean on your own understanding. No other things. You're trusting in Jesus alone. If you acknowledge him, it means if you truly know him, then he will make straight your paths. Now, we know this is a proverb, but it's also fulfilled in a great promise that one day all those who are truly wholeheartedly trusting in Jesus will not be put to shame. We will be able to enjoy the good life forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so when we look back, we can say, wow, you really did make all my paths straight. Even my failures, even my mess-ups, even my stupidity, you somehow turned that out for good. It's amazing. That's what it means to have your paths be made straight. Our father is looking at us straight in the eye and he's saying, my son, my daughter, trust in me. I'll never let you down. I'll never let you go. I'll have you always and forever. I will give you the good life in me. And I'll give you lots of rewards and blessings because I love you. So four oaks, keep God's commandments. Bind God's character and trust God's sovereign care. That is the good life. Amen? Uh, Begin with the founding fathers. And I want to end with a quote from John Adams, one of our founding fathers, second president, who signed, of course, the Declaration of Independence. This is what he says. This is the vision that he had for the country of the United States of America. And ultimately, what he has is a vision for God's people. 
Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia! What a paradise would this region be? If we keep God's word, if we bind his character and we trust in his plans, what kind of church would we be? And ultimately know what kind of heaven we will be able to enjoy forever and ever and ever. Let's pray.